This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 16th. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the father of Leo, who's two and a half, and Eliza, who is six. And I'm really excited that today I'm joined by Carvel Wallace, a writer who lives in Oakland and who has done great work for MTV News, The New Yorker, and The Guardian, among other places. Uh, he writes about music, sports, politics, race, and family life, and, and a lot of other things, too. Carvel, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family before we start. So I am the father of two kids, Georgia, aged 11, and Ezra, who just turned 14 last week. Georgia and Ezra. Um, Those are great names. Georgia and Ezra. Yeah. Um, their mother and I are separated. We have been since 2010. Um, we co-parent as well as I think, I way better than I expected. Um, and we, uh, because we both have two kids that we care for and love a lot, uh, we pretty much stay focused on keeping our relationship in a functional way so that we can support both of them. How, how does she also live in Oakland? She does live in Oakland. So for many years, I was a stay at home dad for the first seven years of parenting. And then when we separated, we went to a well, we had a brief, like, two-day, two-day thing that was a little bit, in terms of custody, which was a, we found a little bit manic, and the kids didn't love that as much. You mean they would go back so and forth sort of, every two days? Yeah, it was, like, Monday, Tuesday here, Wednesday, Thursday here, and alternating Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh -huh. um, and then we switched to week on, week off, which was a lot better. Um, but it's always tricky to have two houses, especially as the kids get older, because then it's like, oh, my viola is at dad's house, but my soccer cleats are at mom's house. Like, there was that, that kind of stuff was happening a lot. Um, and then now we actually, the kids are actually based at the, the mom's house and I spend every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday there with them or out in the world and we hang out or whatever. Uh, and I also take them to school every morning. So I see them every day. So this is really dependent on you having a good relationship with your ex-wife. In this case, it really is. I don't think. I mean, even at our most acrimonious, which was, you know, right after a separation like that, we were together for 13 years. So, like, 
obviously, <laughs> when something of that magnitude ends, it doesn't end on a good note. Um, but even at our most acrimonious, we were functional for the most part. Uh, but then as the years have gone on and we've matured more, we've really b- learned to kind of put aside whatever lingering resentments that we developed over those years. Um, and because underneath that is this incredible love that you have for someone that you met when we were basically teenagers. When we met, you form a family with them. There's like a fundamental love. This is someone that I grew up with. This is like, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so there was a point, I think a couple of years ago, where both of us kind of started, were able to kind of put down whatever lingering resentments we had and just let that be the guide. That this is someone that I love and trust. This is someone that is the parent, the co-parent of my children. I chose that for them. I'm still incredibly happy that I chose that for them. And so we don't really need to hash out the past. How how much do you think your kids were attuned to that change in your relationship, to the, the your ability to get past those resentments? Did they see that going on? Would they say, yes, there was something that changed there? I don't know if they would say that now because kids at this age are phenomenally self-centered. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I wonder if they even, you know what I mean? I think, I think in a lot of ways, adults are just background noise, especially in the adolescent years. Yeah. I do think that maybe later, if you were to, interview my kids in their 20s and they were to look back on it, they would probably be able to identify that their parents' relationship was good and got better over time. Mm. Um, We'll talk in in a few minutes. You and I will talk some more about how your kids are growing up. My Mm. kids, as I said, are uh, two and a half and six. And so uh, you're a little ways down the road from where I am. um, And I kind of want to know what to expect uh, from the tween and the the teenage years. Uh, I'm hoping you'll give me some advice about that. Yeah, I, I can give you a report from the front. Great. Uh, and then we'll be talking to Bonnie Rockman, who is the author of a new book about how genetic technologies are changing parenting for better or for worse. We'll also have triumphs and fails, recommendations, and in our Slate Plus segment, uh, a visit from a Slate writer who is two months into parenthood and is already faced with a parenting dilemma. Uh, but first, a couple of quick announcements. If you are listening to this show, you should like our Facebook page. It's at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. And if you are listening to the show and you're not a member of Slate Plus yet, you should become a member of Slate Plus, which you can do by going to slate.com slash mom and dad plus, where you will be able to hear the full length extended version of this and other Slate podcasts. And if you're not ready to commit, you can now try out Slate Plus for 90 days. That's basically three months uh, for free. When you download the Slate app for iOS, just uh, go to the App Store and search for Slate, download and install the app, and you'll hear this podcast and all the other Slate podcasts in their full, unexpurgated Slate Plus versions for free for 90 days. Give it a try. Okay. Triumphs and fails. I will go first because I have a triumph that I'm going to crow about. Um, it was last Friday and Eliza's school had one of those random days where they're like, yeah, no, sorry, we're not going to have school today because the teachers are learning about a new curriculum or something like that. Uh, and my wife, Tally and I were going to go away for the weekend without the kids starting on Friday afternoon. Um, so, which is a whole nother triumph. Uh, but, but so instead of like figuring out childcare for the extra day of no school for her, I took a, a day off of work, a vacation day. And, and I decided to like hang out with her and, and spend the day taking care of her. And it was freezing cold that day. And, and I didn't really know what we were going to do because we didn't want to go outside. And so we dropped off her brother at his school. She helped me take him to school. Uh, and then we went to Barnes and Noble 
and we hung out in Barnes and Noble in downtown Brooklyn for like four hours. And it turns out that a huge chain bookstore is like the perfect place to hang out with a six-year-old for four hours. Um, we, we worked on her reading, which she's learning to read. So we had a deal where she would read um, like an easy reader book to me. And then I would read a chapter to her of a novelization of a TV movie about the My Little Pony characters where they pass through a magic mirror and turn into human girls and have to rescue a tiara. So we had a kind of back and forth deal going uh and then she browsed around all the books and and looked at books and i I looked at some comic books and i answered emails on my phone and then she said she was hungry and so we went to the barnes and noble cafe and got a muffin uh and she she was eating her muffin and looking at one of the my little pony books that she had brought into the cafe and she looked up at me and she said you could stay here forever it has everything you need and I realized Barnes and Noble is like the perfect place to entertain a six-year-old for just an indefinite amount of time. And if if we do ever need a new place to live, uh, then I think we're probably going to move into the Barnes and Noble in downtown Brooklyn. That is so great, um, Carvel. What about you? Do you have a triumph or a fail for us? Well, it, I I thought so much about this. I I have a triumph, but I want to preface it by saying that. Every single day is a parenting fail. Sure. The triumphs on are only meaningful in the context of, <laughs> of a sea of fails. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, okay. So here's my parenting triumph, Go. which is that my my son turned 14 a couple of weeks ago. And it just so happened that the very day of his birthday was a day that I had to go to New York for some work meetings. And because of all the f- people involved, there was no other day it could happen. It had to be March 3rd. And I made a promise to myself way when he was a baby that I would never miss either one of my kids' birthdays for work. So I hemmed and hawed over this when I got the email and I didn't know what I should do, what I shouldn't do. Um, But then his mother and I decided, well, we have some money saved up for whatever we're going to do in his birthday. We don't know what it is. Why don't we just get him a ticket alongside yours and the two of you will go to New York together? So we told him he was ecstatic. He's really into fashion and streetwear and sneakers and clothes and all these brands and stuff like that. And so to him, it was a trip to Mecca. He was going to, he immediately came forth with an itinerary of all the boutiques he was going to visit and all, you know, just all the sneaker museums or whatever it is that he was going to do. He was pumped. He was bragging to his friends. He was loving it. So the four of us get in the car to go to the airport and we're having one of the worst fighting days ever. The four of us. Everyone is irritated with everyone. His sister is throwing a terrible tantrum. She was, I think, jealous about the New York trip. And a lot of things were going on. Um, He was being kind of his difficult self. His mother and I were not fighting with each other, but we both had had enough of the kids. And it was just the right by the time we got to the airport. We were, he was already on my nerves. And you know and so, now you, you, you've got like a six-hour plane flight and a full six day. Six-hour plane flight, three days in New York. Like, what's this going to be? Yeah. So we get out of the – we say goodbye. We get out of the car, and we start walking towards the ticket gate. And I just decide – it occurs to me, if I handle this trip like a dad, he's going to fight me the whole way, and it's going to be miserable for both of us. So at that moment, I made this decision that I was going to, at least for the duration of this trip – treat him politely like a friend and a travel companion. And that felt like a, a that worried me a little bit because there's this feeling of, is he old enough? Is he, does, can I treat him like a travel companion or will he just act like a goofy kid? And then I'm going to have to like bring the hammer down and do all this dad stuff that he hates. But I made this decision that I was going to do it. And it was phenomenal. The change that happened that trip, it went, it was the bonding trip like from the movies where here's me and my son walking around New York. I showed him the spot where his mom and I first met. 
we kind of tripped out in the fact that like the fact that these two random people happen to be at this spot at this moment is the reason he exists. We went to diners, you know, he, and my, my favorite part was he took me to this one store that he was really into called Flight Club, which is this huge sneaker emporium or whatever. And he's like, dad, I want to take you to Flight Club. I'm like, fine. We go down to Flight Club. He spends an hour taking me through the store, explaining the lineage of every sneaker in that store. And I had no idea that he had that much knowledge. And all that time that he wasn't doing his homework because his grades are terrible, God bless him. And all that time that he wasn't, that he was like running late for school and kind of screwing around on the internet. I realized now that's what he was doing. He was learning all this knowledge about style and streetwear and fashion. And it, it just let me see him through new eyes. You know, like the decision to treat your child like something close to an adult, that's what they're pushing for the whole time. And as parents, I feel like I withhold that because I'm afraid that if I give him too much leeway, he's going to screw it up and he's going to damage himself and maybe other people. And so I don't want to give that. And that's the eternal battle of parenting. But on this trip, I had to make a decision to go beyond my comfort zone to give him an opportunity to feel like himself, to feel like the version of himself he wants to be. So it had the potential to be a failure, but it ended up turning out to be a triumph. That is really good. That is really good. Was there, do you think, like when you decided at the airport, okay, I'm going to sort of adjust my attitude to this relationship for this trip, was there something specific that you were doing? Like you made a decision that you were going to let him buy junk food or do something you wouldn't ordinarily mm. let him to do? Or was it just about a kind of internal reorientation inside you? Yeah, it was more of an internal orientation inside me because the bigger issue that he and I have, and he has been really great about telling me this. He's, we always joke that he gives the best parenting advice of anyone we've ever known. Both our kids do. Mm. And one of the things he's been telling me since sixth grade is because his, like I said, his grades were really bad and his mother and I were unprepared to have a kid who didn't do well in school. That just never occurred to us that that would happen. And he immediately started middle school and just didn't care. He just, I mean, it wasn't like he couldn't do it. He just didn't care. And so that was a source of constant frustration. And it led into this dynamic where I was always kind of on him about his grades, trying to impart the lesson that you must work hard, son, and opportunities, just doing dad stuff. And one of the things that he would periodically say was that basically some version of this doesn't work for me. I feel like our whole relationship is you telling me I'm doing stuff wrong. And that would bother me, but then my response would always be something like, well, I tell you this because I love you, and you have to know, and then next thing I know, I'd be off in another lecture. And finally, on this trip, it I mean, this has been a long time coming, but on this trip, I think I did kind of an internal reorientation, like, that's not going to be what this is about. This is going to be about listening to him and connecting with him. And in some ways, I'm ashamed that it took so long, because in the books, that's what you're supposed to do. But when an actual child is in front of you, and you're in fear about their future and their opportunities. Yeah. It's, it's really hard it's to very lean distracting. into that stuff. Those grades are really distracting. Yeah, they really are. And it's hard. He does not care about his grades. Yeah. He just is like, Dad, I don't, I don't get what the point is. Why? Yeah. And I don't have a great satisfactory answer for that to him. And he knows I don't have a satisfactory answer to that. I mean, I have answers, but they don't satisfy him. Yeah. And so, you know, parenting is a push-pull, especially once you get to adolescence. But so much of it, I think, has to do with those moments when, as parents, we let them do something a little bit beyond what we're comfortable with. We have to be soft around the edges. And it's scary, and it's 
worrisome, and it goes all the way through. It's from the first moment you let go of the bike to the first moment you let them hold scissors to the first moment you let them walk to the store on their own. But that's really what parent, that's really one of the hardest and most important parts of parenting is getting to your edges and then taking the risk with your fingers crossed and your hands in prayer position, taking the risk to let them go a little farther than you want, but closer to what they want. Let's go straight from here into what I was going to ask you about. Um, so he's a teenager now, and I I am looking down the road at the teenage years, and it's it's as though I'm on the Titanic, and there's this sort of iceberg <laughs> looming, yes, and, and it's accurate. gonna like massively upend everything in my life, and I can see the iceberg getting closer and closer, but I I I don't feel like I can change course. Mm. What should I expect when I hit the iceberg, and and is there anything I can do now to like steer the ship? Yeah, so I. Just like if you th- think back to what you thought having kids was going to be before you had kids mm-hmm. versus what it has turned out in reality, I would say that everything works that way. So before you have kids, you're like, oh, it's gonna, this is going to be hard. This is going to be easy. This is going to be fun. This is going to be a dreadful. And then what happens is some of that stuff is right and much of that stuff isn't right. That What actually happens surprises you. I'll never forget this one guy saying before I had kids, he was like, you think it's, he's like, the things you don't realize is how many questions they ask. Like, dad, why did you scratch your beard? And like <laughs> that, that example always stuck with me. Like, that's right. You don't know the weird things that are going to happen. And adolescence is the same way. We have this cultural idea of adolescence that it's these sulky kids who, you know, have smart mouths and don't want to talk to you. And there is some of that, but I was pleasantly surprised by other parts of adolescence that you never hear about, which is how great it is to have kids with increasing, rapidly increasing emotional intelligence in your life, Mm. to have them come to you and bring up questions about the nature of existence or about how to handle emotional and personal, even spiritual conflicts at school. I didn't think about that. I just thought, oh, it's just going to be a point where the kids won't do what I want and I'm going to be frustrated and we're all going to be mad. But the reality of it is that there's so many wonderful things that happen. Sometimes the kids are awful. They're, They're monsters and I cannot stand them. Sometimes. But other times, and in fact, I would say more than half the time, they're just wonderful, interesting people that I get to hang out with and get to know. So I would say the the thing, what to look out for is that prepare to be surprised and remember that the main, I think, that the main value that you get to bring to the kid's adolescence, besides all the parenting stuff we know, here's some food, I'm going to make sure a tree doesn't fall on you, that sort of thing. The main value that you get to bring is that you start to reflect for them what it's like to have someone listen to them. And your job as a parent is to get to know them because they're constantly revealing new things about who they are that you never would have expected. And that I missed and I miss in the times that I get focused on my authoritarian role. I miss the aspects about who they are. So teenage adolescence, and no one agrees with this, but I think it's true. Adolescence is actually kind of a wonderful, marvelous time because you're watching a kid turn into an adult and you're watching um, good people get formed. And that's not the only element of it, but I think it's important to always stay in touch with that. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself and the kids crazy. Mm And what about like going into adolescence? Is there, are there things that I can do to, to prepare? So, yeah, so my main theory now in retrospect is that the main thing that we were concerned about going into adolescence is communication because the kids are going out into the world and 
if you remember from your own adolescence, I remember from mine, I was out doing things that the adults did not know about and would very much not have approved of. And if I thought my kid was making those same decisions, I would be petrified. And and yet that's what happens in adolescence. Kids, they go to parties, they're hanging out with kids, people start making bad decisions, they're on the fence about what they should do, they're in the world. And that can be, frankly, terrifying. So one of the things that we felt like is that the whole time they were in their 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 ages, we wanted to parent in such a way that this would happen. Because that at some point, one of those kids was going to be at a party or whatever, and the situation was going to turn uncertain for them. And they're going to have to make a decision. Do I call my parents in for backup here or do I just try and handle this on my own? And what we wanted to do was always form the kind of relationship where they felt like they could call us and say, look, here's what's happening. I'm, I'm a little stressed out about it. Can you either pick me up or help me out or give me some advice? And the way that I think that you established that, and I feel like we sort of have that, is that all those single digit years are about building communication and listening. And um, a lot of it has to do with letting go of control so that the kids feel listened to, respected, you f- they feel like you trust them. Because in those moments, those adolescent moments when they're at a party, it's 2 a.m. and kids are starting to make poor decisions and they're deciding what they do, you don't want them to feel like they're going to handle this on their own. You want them to feel like that if they get in a jam, they can call you and they know the first thing they're going to get from you is help and support. And, and they're not going to get like lectures and anger and frustration and things like that later. So have you gotten that 2 a.m. call yet? We have gotten, the other day when I was in Boston, I was at the Celtics game for this ESPN thing and my phone rang and it was my son. And I, of course, I didn't want to answer it because I'm like supposed to pay attention to this game and all that, but I picked it up. And he was like, dad, this thing happened and I just wanted to tell you about it. And he told me about a story of going to this girl's house and having a pretty, like an interaction with her father that made him feel uncertain and a little bit nervous and a little bit like he just didn't like this da- this dad and didn't like the way this dad talked to him and felt a little intimidated and scared. Well, now I need to know what the dad said. You know, it's a little complicated, but it was it, he's this this girl has like an old school dad who kind of gave my son the like the like um not with my the, daughter, like, like careful the, with the, my not daughter. Not with my daughter. Yeah. Care, yeah, and he made some joke about having a machete in the garage. Hey. And uh, yeah, that, that, that is a cliche. But if you're not familiar with the cliche, that could be quite exactly. scary. That's right. Yeah. And he and he gave my son a hard time for not properly greeting him when he came in the house. And uh-huh. he sort of pulled him aside and was like, look, when you come into a man's house, you have to greet him respectfully. And the man's the head of the household. And that's disrespectful. And my son was just sort of like, what's all this? Because, I mean, this is a kid raised in Berkeley, Oakland. Like he doesn't, you know, he's like, I don't what's this? You know, and so. He called me up, like, basically like, Dad, you're old. You, can you help me understand this behavior? <laughs> Is this a normal dad thing? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. I mean, there. I was just was like, yeah, there are some people who act that way. And that's one of the things that you learn is how to, how to understand different people's cultural, social ideas and how to, like, kind of move smoothly through them without yeah. creating too much friction. And what happens when they just, like, drop you into them without any warning? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, but I felt really relieved and sort of grateful to receive that phone call, even though I missed like eight plays and now I don't know how I'm going to cover for that in the piece. Um, I felt really glad to have that phone call with him because it sort of confirmed like, okay, he still thinks of me as someone who can offer him some perspective that he wants. 
So do you remember anything very specific that you did earlier in his childhood that set him up to make that phone call to you? That's a really great question. Um, one of the things that I try to do with both the kids is listen and let them talk for a really long time. <laughs> That's probably the main strategy I employ is letting them talk for a really long time because both my kids are talkers and they have a lot to say and they have a lot of observations and questions. And I find that the longer you let someone talk, the closer they get to the truth. This is a thing you learn and in journalism as well, right? Like when you're interviewing yeah. people, that's presumably a thing that you do. Yes, that's a thing I learned in journalism. And I also worked in social work fields for like 10, 11 years. And so when I would work with clients, that was something I kind of learned early on that there's a very specific way that you sort of ask questions and then let people talk and then prod them along without throwing too much of your own stuff in there so that they feel listened to and also encouraged. And so I think when my kids were little, they would go on at length about, because kids are obsessive, you know how kids are. So it's like one minute it's Transformers, the next minute it's like how to make slime, the next minute it's just whatever it is. And a lot of times, to be totally candid, these conversations would bore me to tears. I would just be like, I'm trying to make dinner. I, like I can't focus on reading this recipe and also hearing like the extensive thoughts you have about the Transformers universe. But I was, I had this thing in mind, like, I want them to feel like that we're both a place that they can come to talk. And so I would try and let those conversations go longer than I wanted them to. I also like there's behavior stuff with the kids in the house that we um, that I'm more active on. Like, hey, you can't talk to your mother that way. Hey, this is the way when your sister feels frustrated. This is how you behave. When your brother does this, you can't yell at him like this. But when it comes to things in the world, when they say like, Dad, I, I was, kids in the world, kids in my school are saying this thing or doing this thing. That's when I try to slip into super non-judgmental mode mm. because that's the main thing I'm going to need them to feel comfortable talking to me about is how do they navigate a world in which people sometimes behave irrationally, dangerously, and in a way that's against our values. So I think in those instances, from the time they were very little, I tried very hard, hard to let them admit their own behavior without me getting angry about it. That's a really good one. And I think I, my instincts go in exactly the wrong direction on that one. I like Eliza is just at the age where like there are now social dynamics in her kindergarten class that like she reports back and, and I, I always want to like backseat drive her. Like if you, if you, you know, she, she insists on like playing her particular game and then she gets mad that nobody wants to play that game. And my instinct is always, well, maybe you need to ask them what game they want to play. And maybe you need to learn to cooperate with them better. And then you could suggest taking turns. And first you'll play their game and then they'll play your And like, I can't, you can't do that. I can't give her that advice like this evening over dinner and then expect that three days later that's going to be like actionable in her head on the playground at kindergarten. Yeah, that's true. And actually, you, especially that last thing you said, you hit on something that I feel pretty strongly about with parenting, which is that it's very difficult to, you're, you're sort of inputting information, but you're not going to see the results that day. That's like an important thing to remember. Like kids aren't going to just do what you say the day that you say to do it. I mean, every, that's the most fundamental thing about parenting is that, and this is terrible, 
but that you cannot control your kids, <laughs> even though that seems to be the whole job description is yeah. like, hey, control these kids, make sure they act right, make sure they don't do anything terrible. But like literally, that's the one thing that you cannot do. And so I think there's this kind of internal shift that comes from um, believing that, well, I'm going to input this information and then three days later, they're going to act on it and it's going to be great to you're trying to work from example. You're trying to work from attraction rather than promotion. You're not really promoting ideas as much as you're just sort of saying, hey, here's how I navigate stuff like this and you're free to do what you want. Lately, one of the things I find myself saying to kids more often than I thought I would is you're free to do what you want. Like, this is what I think, but you're free to do what you want. Um, even this morning in the car with my daughter, she was having some frustration about some social thing. She's in sixth grade, so that's whew, a whole set of things that she's now encountered in middle school that she wasn't dealing with in elementary school. She's sort of navigating these various like popularity groups, and she fits in the middle, which in some ways the hardest because like there are some kids she feels like she's are above her, and other kids that she's above, and. And I was saying things like, well, you have to be kind to all people and blah, 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 blah. And she was like, but what if someone is like a jerk to you? And I found myself saying, you know, my experience is that it works better if you have a certain set of values about the way you behave and you employ them all the time, no matter how other people behave, but you can do what you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, this has been really helpful. Um, I, I do feel like I can take some stuff away from this, even, even that I can act on now, even, you know, six years before, seven years before she becomes a teenager. Jesus, that's going to mm-hmm. be over quickly. Um, <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's take a call from a listener. Um, our call today is from Denise in Seattle, Washington. My husband and I are in need of some parenting help with our almost seven-year-old son who seems to have zero motivation or self-discipline when it comes to getting out of the house in the morning to go to school. He will dawdle, delay, and literally just sit in a cardboard box instead of getting dressed, eating breakfast, and brushing his teeth before we have to leave at 7.30 a.m. We've tried positive rewards like watching the iPad if he's ready to go and discipline like taking a time out in his room, but nothing seems to work. We don't want to resort to things like kid apps or timers because screen time could be a potential reward or motivator, but we're tired of yelling about socks and starting our day in tears. What do we do? What works for your family? Well, I can say first off that I want Carvel to answer this because I do not have a really good solution. We, um, like we have this problem too there we have two parents in our household and so we have it very rigorously organized where like each of us in, is in charge of a different set of stuff and a different kid at different times and like we have to just have everything planned down to the minute and it requires a lot of direct parental supervision and we also both have to get out the door and if you were only one parent trying to do this um and get yourself ready to leave as well i don't know what i would do what do you do well, to answer your question, what do we do that works? Nothing, because nothing, <laughs> nothing works in this scenario. This is a this is a timeless problem of parenting. Um, the ratio is good; one kid to one parent is okay. We have we 
both the, my kid's mom and I have historically had this problem, one kid versus two parent. I mean, one parent versus two kids, which is even more terrifying. Um, fortunately, in our instance, it's only the one kid who struggles the most. That's my, my son. And he, he has always struggled with this. Even now in eighth grade, this is still an ongoing concern. One of the things that... So I feel like you can try different things and things will work, but only for a matter of time. And you you can't stop this issue. I don't think you can only hope to contain it. <laughs> but one of the things that we did, and this goes back to kind of what, what Gabriel said, like we, we we went through a period where I figured out what time he has to have his socks on by, what time he has to have his jacket by what time he asked it. So it was like literally less like this sort of like seven thirty, get out of bed, seven forty-five, like have your shoes on, seven, you know, whatever it was, seven fifty, brush teeth. And even though that didn't he didn't follow that like with military precision because that simply is not his style, it helped organize the whole thing and everything went a little smoother when we when we had that set up. And so I could just sort of say and the, I think the reason it worked is because it was a third, th- that piece of paper with the printout felt like a third party. It was neither me nor the kid. It was simply the facts of the situation. So I could say, oh, look, it's 745. You need to be out of bed by now, according to the paper. And this is when he was like seven, eight years old. And it never occurred to him, well, you made the paper. <laughs> like, it didn't feel like to him that it was part of me. It felt like it was sort of the thing that we do. And I think that helped contain his drifting and wandering and focus him a little bit. And sort of depersonalize but, it. Like it's not like dad being an asshole. That's exactly right. Because that becomes its own dynamic. And one of the really tricky things with kids is if you make it you versus them, then you're in for a long haul. It has to be them versus time or them versus something else that they would like to have but can't get because they're struggling with this one thing. I find that they'll adjust a lot more quickly to that. So yeah, it depersonalizes it. But again, I say this with a caveat that and I know that on the show, we've both done triumphs, but parenting every day is a parenting fail of some level. It is very difficult to get your kids to do exactly what you want. I mean, even the Bible opens with kids disobeying their parents and their parent is God. And still they don't do what God says. So like, it's like clearly as human beings, we're not going to get our kids to do everything we want. You're just trying to minimize the damage and keep the morning going in a way that sort of flows, but lacks tears. We definitely want a tear-free morning. And so I find that this like schedule thing helps. And the other thing that helps, and this is really hard, is giving, waking the kid up earlier um, so that there is more time for them to wander off track, space out, fail to do things, not follow directions. Because I find that the increased time pressure, like we have a half an hour to get this whole thing together, or 45 minutes or whatever it is, that raises my emotional temperature, which makes me more prone to outbursts and tantrums, which is where it all goes off the rails. Uh, there's a I before I did this show I called my kid's mom to ask her thoughts about all this stuff cuz she is a really great parent and she struggles a lot which the two things are the same and she said the same thing that your guest a few weeks ago said which is that you've got to put your oxygen mask on first before assisting children and in the morning my main goal is always don't have a dad tantrum <laughs> that's yeah. my number one goal. Even if that means we're going to be late, don't have a dad tantrum. Yeah. If the kid has a tantrum, fine. Don't have a dad tantrum. Um, and so having more time helps with that. Absolutely. Something somebody said to me about this once is little kids are not good at hurrying. Do everything you can to avoid being in a situation where you have to make a little kid hurry. 
And like, unfortunately, maybe that means like waking up at six instead of six thirty or six forty-five, which is terrible. Like that's a brutal sacrifice to make. But that may be the set of choices that you are faced with here, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree that kids do not understand hurry. It just isn't in their vocabulary, and you're asking someone to do something they can't do. Yeah. Um, if you set up a hurry situation. Denise, thanks for the call. If you have uh, a problem that you would like uh, our podcast to help you solve or perhaps to uh, regretfully throw up our hands and cite the book of Genesis instead of solving, um, give us a call at uh, 424-255-7833. That number is 424-255-7833. Genetic technology is changing the way kids are conceived, the way they're born, and even who they are. We're here with Bonnie Rockman. She's a health journalist, and she's the author of the new book, The Gene Machine, How Genetic Technologies Are Changing the Way We Have Kids and the Kids We Have. Um, an excerpt from it ran in Slate uh, under the headline, What Kind of Baby Do You Want? I'll link to that on our show page. Bonnie, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So one of the genetic technologies that you write about uh, is about parents who, who do in vitro fertilization, who do IVF, and they use something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to, to select the embryos that they implant. Can, can you just tell us how that process works? Sure. So pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is a mouthful, which is why it is often uh, abbreviated PGD. And that process involves creating embryos through in vitro fertilization. And then you're not actually changing the embryos, which is a whole, um, whole other can of worms, but you are just simply looking at them um, under a microscope to figure out which of them carry the specific genetic mutation that you're trying to avoid. And then the ones that have that genetic mutation, you set them aside and you would only transfer the embryos that are quote unquote clean or don't have that genetic mutation into a woman's uterus. And so what that does is help you have a child who does not, who has not inherited a genetic disease that runs in your family. Well, so that's a clear cut example, right? If there's a disease in my family and I, I'm doing IVF with my partner and we select embryos that, that don't test positive for that mutation that, that causes that disease, I, I think most parents would be pretty glad to know that, that that's an option, that they can screen out those embryos and, and yes. select another one. Um, are there harder cases than that? Does it get more complicated? Yeah, it certainly can get more complicated. So for something like Tay-Sachs disease, which is this really awful um, diagnosis and a child typically dies before kindergarten, it's pretty clear cut, as you say. But then um, what has been becoming um, increasingly common, I won't say it happens often, but it is becoming less unusual, is to opt to do PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for something like a breast cancer mutation. So that's pretty, that's in the news all the time. That's what Angelina Jolie has, a BRCA mutation. It increases your risk of getting breast and ovarian cancer. And you can also, if you know you have a mutation, you can say, like, let's say you're someone in whose family this 
disease has just really wreaked havoc. Let's say your mom died at a young age and your grandma died and aunts died or have been diagnosed and it's just really been hell. And and perhaps you have even been diagnosed and you just wanna you want to stop this train. So you can opt to do PGD and select an embryo that does not have this breast cancer mutation. And then your child, let's say it's a girl, will go on to simply have the same risk of developing breast cancer that that any woman in this country does, which is 12%. So what, one of the things that you said that was interesting to me is that um, people is that right now it's about a particular uh, situation, like issue that has caused wrought havoc in your family over time. But one of the things that like a lay person thinks is that how do people define that? Ultimately there's a fear. I guess the, the primary fear is that someone's going to be like, well, we're short people and that has wrought havoc. <laughs> like we don't get, you know, or like we're not pretty. And so we, you know what I mean? Like we don't get the opportunities or, or race. Like it's harder to be black than it is to be white yeah. in America. And so how can we adjust? That's the fear that I think people have. Do, how valid do you think that is that ultimately this turns into just creating like a, uh, a, a like a, a species of people that are all identical and perfect? So that's a great question. And I think that is on the mind of, on the minds of a lot of people. One of the, perhaps the most important thing to understand is at this point in time, we don't know how to create these so-called, and I have little air quotes if you could see me, designer babies. Um, so there is not just one specific gene that codes for a baby Einstein or the next Steph Curry. So it's not like we can say, okay, let's pluck that gene and this one will, you know, infuse this embryo with all these great things and awesome, we'll have a super baby. Because the, the reason for that is that in so many situations, multiple genes result in a particular characteristic or a trait. But um, one bioethicist who I spoke with, um, Jeffrey Kahn at Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, he gave me the example of um, this really awful disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And it affects mostly boys. And it's this muscle wasting disease and is fatal typically by the time a boy reaches his his mid twenties. And there, there's currently, uh, there are companies working on gene editing technology to address this muscle weakness. So if you can imagine being able to use this gene editing technology to strengthen muscle fibers, or I don't know exactly what they would do to try and address the, um, the muscle weakness issue, but if they're able to figure that out, then you might have some, you know, NFL player thinking, Hey, well, if we can do that, if you can strengthen muscle that way, well, maybe I can use that technology. Maybe I can find someone who can use that technology so that when I have a baby, um, my baby's just a little, maybe the, my baby's just a little bit stronger. Um, so it's not, you know, that leap is not, it's, it's not unimaginable. Hmm. Beyond these questions of, of selecting particular embryos for implantation or of, of editing genes and, and actually changing the embryos themselves, um, one thing that technology is giving us now is a lot more information about our kids when they're born and even before they're born. We get to, to 
learned from their uh, genome um, about some of their uh, some of the diseases that they might be susceptible to, some of the problems that they might have, um, and in some cases that can be very useful. It, are, are there cases where that information is not useful? Is there such a thing as too much information about your genes or about your kids' genes? Well, I think as with um, another very sticky ethical issue, um, you know, people talk about abortion um, that all creates a lot of controversy depending on how you, you know, what you feel about how, what and how you feel about that. Um, but I think it's an individual choice. And I feel like access to information and tolerance for information and eagerness to um, eagerness to just jump in and get all this data is also really an individual choice. So there are certainly instances, and in my book, I talk about this, um, the case of a family who, um, who had this adorable toddler who, um, who I met, they live in Pennsylvania. And this little boy um, was found on his uh, newborn screening test at birth to have some hearing loss and hearing loss didn't run in their family. And um, there was no obvious reason for it. So um, his doctor said, um, let, well, let's do a full workup on this kid. And they sent him to a bunch of specialists, including a, a visit to the genetics clinic. And so they did, uh, they tested the, um, this little boy and he was found to be missing some genes. Um, but the genes did not explain the reason they didn't explain his hearing loss. Um, and so the family, they're beside themselves. They feel like they're, um, their joy in having this cutie pie of a kid has been tempered by wondering, by fearing what is in his future. One of the problems with that missing gene situation, it seems to me, is you have some information, but not enough. Like, you, you know that you're missing the genes, but we're unable to know how that is going to play out or what that means. So totally. we're in a, you're in a sort of uh, like stuck in the middle in terms of what information is available to you. Yeah. And, and I think that that is really... Um, we're kind of at this, um, I was going to say crisis point, but I think that's, I think that's probably overstating it. But the, 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 definitely the issue is that our technology, our ability to, to deploy and to use this technology has really far outpaced our understanding of the technology. I mean, open any newspaper, go online, listen to the radio practically every day. There's some, oh, this new gene has been associated with, uh, not this new gene, but this gene has been newly associated with this disease, or there's a likelihood of, you know, it causing diabetes or, or whatever. You're always finding out about new gene associations, which is really amazing and useful because once genes are associated with disease, then, you know, really smart people can start working on treatments and cures. Um, but the point is, is that the reason these discoveries are so no noteworthy is because there's so much that we don't know. Um, and so we're giving parents all this information that in many instances is unclear. Hmm. Are there more parents now who are choosing to do IVF, not because they need to in order to have kids, but because they want to do pre-implantation testing? I would say that number is really minimal. And, you know, because you have to think about everything that involves. So I was fortunate enough to not have to go through IVF, but two of my best friends did. And, you know, I got 
daily blow by blows of everything that's involved and the injections and the mood swings and the bloating. And then of course the cost. So to want to do this kind of just for the hell of it, not many people are going to do that unless they have a real health related issue. So, you know, someone who wants to avoid a fatal passing on a genetic disease that can be fatal, or, you know, as we spoke about a couple minutes ago, someone whose um, breast cancer mutation has really been deadly in their family. But I really feel like that is in the minority because those people are in the minority because even among um, women who do um, carry that that breast cancer mutation, there's a lot of um, debate and conflict about how people feel about that because people, uh, some people feel like that's, you know, that's playing God. So it's not like there is a, um, you know, there's kind of a, a, a uniformity among people who have, I mean, if there's uniformity, I think among people who would know that they would transmit a fatal genetic disease to their kid. Like you don't have to think pretty hard to, to realize that that's not something you want to do, but with breast cancer, having the mutation, it just means that you have an increased risk of disease. It doesn't even mean that you will necessarily get the disease. And of course, you know, there, you can increase surveillance and, um, you can have a prophylactic mastectomy. So like there are things that you can do to try and um, and lower lower your disease risk. I wonder what what you personally think about the nature of these concerns. Um, it's funny that you mentioned um, playing God because um, I, this flashes back to a conversation that I actually had with my kids, where my daughter in her sixth grade class had to do a little story about this news event, this gene editing thing. And so uh-huh. this opened up this great debate at dinner about playing God, which not playing God. And of course, my kids yeah. went to complete opposite sides of the debate. But my daughter said, well, we're always playing God. That's what everything is. We're supposed to have be dead by the time we're 40. Clearly, that's <laughs> not happening. you know. And so she's like, it kind of doesn't matter. And I wonder what, what your thoughts are about that, just kind of personally. Um. Okay, you're putting me on the spot here, but happy, yeah. happy to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about. You said that was your daughter, right? Yeah. Okay, I want to. I want to tell you something about um, about kids and this whole topic after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I don't think it's playing God. Um, and if I knew that I had, I mean, hands down, if I knew that I had a a, a fatal genetic disease that I would pass on to a kid absolutely no question that I would um, use pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to select an embryo that did not have that mutation. And if I knew that I had a breast cancer mutation, I would do the same thing. Um, I just feel that as parents, what do we do? Like, what do we do as parents? I always tell, I have three kids. Um, now, <laughs> let me think, like, how old are they now? Um, nine, 12, and 14. And I always tell them, my job is to keep you safe and to make sure that you grow up so that you can handle this world on your own, like to make you independent and autonomous. And of course, my job is to love you. But um, if my job is to keep safe and there is a technology that I know will make my kids you know, healthier by not having this increased risk of disease, I would do it. Now, some people would argue, okay, well, that's just one risk for disease. Like there, I'm sure your kids have increased risk for a million other diseases. Totally true. But you can't, you know, you can't address what you don't know about. Hmm. Yeah. You want to say something about your kid? Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, 
I've been fascinated by how how much kids really connect with this. And I think I've been really doing a lot of thinking about it because um, so uh, this is my first book and I had um, some, I had a, a launch party and um, gave a, an, a book talk. And my son, who's in eighth grade biology, three of his friends came to the talk, like asked their moms if they could come to the talk, not because because they thought it was interesting. So I find, and I'm like, okay, let them know, like this is really a talk geared more for adults, so I'm not sure, they might get bored, but there will be food. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they um, they were so, they were so fascinated by it and really engaged with it. And I think it's because our kids are growing up surrounded by technology everywhere. So this doesn't necessarily freak them out the way it freaks out a lot of, you know, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and on up, because they're used to using technology to change all sorts of things, to enhance all sorts of things. Like This is their life. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I felt the same way that my kids were a lot more, especially my daughter, who's the youngest, was a lot more like, hey, this is what it is. This is how it goes. Like, whatever. Yeah. And I was like, what about the moral implications, oh, my no. child? She was moral. like, whatever, dad. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, they find it a lot more straightforward. Like, I think it's it's much more black and white thinking like, well, if we're able to harness technology to, you know, prevent disease, who wouldn't do that? It's not, you know, it's not um, emotional. It's, it's not emotionally and ethically fraught the way it is for um, people of an older generation. Well, it's also they've only relatively recently learned about the traditional way of making babies. And, and that, <laughs> that was pretty weird. So this isn't that much weirder to them. <laughs> totally. It's, this actually probably feels a lot like a lot less disgusting to them. Yeah, you make, make them in a machine. <laughs> Very straightforward. <laughs> That's an excellent point. <laughs> All right. Uh, Bonnie Rockman, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, the book is called The Gene Machine, How Genetic Technologies Are Changing the Way We Have Kids and the Kids We Have. Thank you so much. All right. Time for recommendations. Carvel, what can you recommend to folks? Okay. So my recommendation is something we used to do as a family that we called Link Roundup. And this has to do with the unwanted intrusion of technology into our family and the way in which personal devices, iPads, computers, uh, phones have taken over everyone's attention. Um, so what Link Roundup is, is a weekly event that we have as a family <clears throat> starting at 7 p.m. or 7.30, depending on the evening schedule, where each person in our family gets to show something from the internet that they've seen that week that they would like to share with the rest of the family. Could be a music video, could be a how-to video, could be a, a song from Spotify, could be a link to an article or what have you. And we have a couple rules in place, which is like no clips longer than five minutes. No one is allowed to comment on or ask questions about the clips until after it's over. And we usually do two, maybe three rounds, depending on how it's going. And we find that this accomplishes a couple of things. Number one, selfishly, it allows me as a dad to force my kids to watch corny, dry, like historical documentaries that they would normally run screaming from because it's within the context of, hey, we're just sharing what it is that we found interesting. So in this context, I've had my kids watch things about Harlem in the 30s. I've had my kids watch things about um, uh, things from National Geographic. It's just been a, like, it's just a great opportunity for me as a parent to be like, hey, there's a cool thing. And because it's within this container, they don't, they're not going to go, I'm not interested in this, I'm out. 
there's they know that this is the game we're playing. I think the other thing that it does for them is it gives it gives them an opportunity to have some of their internet wandering guided because in the back of their mind they're thinking like what's something that my dad would think is interesting? What's something my mom would think was interesting? What's something that I think is interesting and I want them to know about me, which is usually what it turns out to be. And the third thing I think it accomplishes is it gives us as parents an opportunity to understand where our kids, where their heads are at. Um, What are they obsessed with? Like, I remember for many weeks of doing this, my daughter was really interested in like internet uh, how-to videos, like um, things about fashion and makeup and clothing and how to apply, like how to match shoes with shirts or what have you. This is when she was like nine or 10. And it just gave me an understanding of like, what kind of world she's viewing, what kind of lens she's viewing the world through, what kinds of things she's comparing herself to, so that I had some understanding of like where she was coming from, what she was thinking, how she understood the world. Um, And of course, the key to this is to like operate this without judgment. So the part of me that wants to look at something my kids show me and go, well, that's not healthy because blah, 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 and you need blah, blah, and then this is like an unattainable beauty standard and so on and so forth. I always remember something an ex-girlfriend said to me years ago who was raised in Vermont by these like super hippie parents. She said my dad was like, had really strong political opinions. And whenever he walked in the room and we were watching something other than PBS, he always just seemed disappointed in us. And I I remember the pain. I, I could feel her pain when she said that. And she was like 33. And I, the reason that struck me is because I feel like I've done that to my kids. Like, these are my values and you're not in line with them. And so I'm disappointed in you that they could feel that for me. And so this link roundup thing was a chance for me to like, let go of some of that and give them the floor. Uh, and I think that's the key part. It's like giving kids the floor in a contained, organized way. That's great. Because I think back to like when I was a kid and I was obsessed with like superhero comics and my parents thought superhero comics were pretty dumb, but they didn't like stop me from buying them and reading them. But they knew like there were superhero comics all over my room. I might be sitting in the living room reading superhero comics. They didn't really know what I was reading, but they could see what it was. Like it it had a cover with like a picture of Spider-Man on it or whatever. When my kids get into all of whatever they're going to get into, what I will see is a kid looking at a phone or a kid looking at a laptop or an iPad or whatever. And I will have no idea what it is that they are reading or watching or engaging with unless I do something like that. That seems like a really good way to get past the fact that like externally now all culture looks exactly the same. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. I have a recommendation uh, that is a bit more old fashioned. It's a series of books. Um, They are out of print. They are translated from the Swedish. They are weirdly charming and good. Um, The one I found like at some thrift store was called Will Gets a Haircut. It's by Olaf and Lena Landstrom. Uh, and I liked it and the kids liked it. And so we got, um, Will goes to the beach and Will's new cap and Will goes to the post office. These are just books about a little boy in Sweden. The stories are kind of banal. They involve very ordinary things like getting a haircut or going to the beach. Uh, the drawings are very charming in a kind of European cartooning style, like, um, Hergé, the Tintin books, or like, um, they really remind me of, uh, Sempe, the illustrator of the Nicholas books, who also does covers for the New Yorker. Uh, but there's something delightful about these books and these illustrations. And my kids who do not take to every book that I like, um, really got into these ones as well. So you can get some of them pretty cheap on Amazon. Uh, 
by the books about Will by Olaf and Lena Landstrom. I'll put a link to that on our show page. Okay, that's our show. Uh, leave comments or questions on our Facebook page, slate.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Uh, my co-host today was Carvel Wallace, who you can find on the web at carvelwallace.com or on Twitter at Carvel Wallace. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It was wonderful. Uh, and um, good luck to everyone in all of your impossible parenting feats and tasks. And to you. If you have any suggestions for anyone else who should appear on the show, send them to us at momanddad at slate.com or post them on our Facebook page. See you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.